Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know I have a free on-demand masterclass called Five Steps to Writing a Novel Without Letting Perfectionism or Procrastination Get in the Way. In this free training, I cover things like where perfectionism comes from, how it's directly linked to procrastination, and what you can do right now to start making real progress with your writing. I also talk about the problem with popular plotting methods and how they can do more harm than good, especially if you're brand new to writing. And last but certainly not least, I share some of the most common mistakes I see writers make so you can avoid them and make this the year you finish your novel. If this sounds like something you're interested in, you can sign up for free at savannagilbo.com forward slash training. One more time, that's savannagilbo.com forward slash training to get your hands on this free masterclass. We know this is Harry's story. So how do we want to frame an arc of change that represents the global story that affects Harry? Mm -hmm. So what we came up with was Basically, mm-hmm. as Vernon deals with strange events, the wizarding world celebrates Harry's survival and the temporary defeat of Lord Voldemort. So Harry and the wizarding world were in danger. And throughout this scene in the background of it, they have moved to be being temporarily safe. So something has definitely changed from that big zoomed out global perspective as well. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the things that Savannah and I had to get our heads wrapped around as we yeah. were doing like another level of this is that when you're looking at the scene level versus the big picture, but you can't now that I, I mean, now that I've processed that we need to look at right. both of those things, I can't not look at it anymore. And it makes sense, right? Because when you're writing your drafts, you are focusing on big picture first, but then you have to look at small picture, but small picture has to impact big picture. So this idea of like not trying to force it, but just look for how is the small picture impacting the big picture. Welcome to the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast. My name is Savannah Gilbo, and I'm here to help you write a story that works. I want to prove to you that writing a novel doesn't have to be overwhelming. So each week, I'll bring you a brand new episode with simple, actionable, and step-by-step strategies that you can implement in your writing right away. Whether you're brand new to writing or more of a seasoned author looking to improve your craft, this podcast is for you. So pick up a pen and let's get started. In today's episode, we're diving deep into the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And I'm super excited to share this episode with you because not only am I a huge Harry Potter fan, and not only do I think this is a great example of an opening chapter, but I'm also joined by a very special guest and fellow developmental editor and Harry Potter nerd, Abigail Perry. Abigail is also the host of the Lit Match podcast, where she helps writers find the best literary agent for their writing and publishing career. I will link to her podcast in the show notes, as well as where you can find Abigail around the internet if you would like to get in touch with her. But in this episode, we're discussing and analyzing the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So specifically, we're looking at how the first chapter engages readers from the start and how it sets up expectations for the rest of the book. To do this, we're going to look at the big picture of the chapter first, and we're going to talk about how it's actually made up of two separate scenes. So we're going to look at how and why the big picture of the chapter works, and then we're going to zoom into each one of those two scenes in the opening chapter to see how they're structured and how they each serve an important purpose in the overarching story. So that's a quick overview of what we're going to dig into today. And without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation. We've looked at Sorcerer's Stone together closely for probably two years now. I think it's been about two years. So we're pretty familiar with this book and we both know how much we love Harry Potter, but it's really fun to start looking at this now on first chapters and why this is such a great first chapter. Yeah. And this is going to be fun too, because it's not a typical first chapter, but it does all the things that a first chapter needs to do. So I know we're going to get into all that, but I'm super excited too. And like Abigail said, we've been talking about this for at least two years, sometimes in like the most excruciating detail. So um, we're going to nerd out big time today. It's going to be fun. One of the things that I've liked to do is talk about how the first chapters satisfy these seven key questions to look at when you're looking at a first chapter for you as a writer, as an editor, whatever role you're playing. So these seven questions come from the Writer's Guide to Beginnings, which is a really great book on writing the beginning of your story written by author and literary agent Polly Munay. And these seven questions are, what kind of story is it? What is the story really about? Who is telling the story? Which character should they care about most? Where and when does the story take place? How should they and they being the reader feel about what's happening and why should care about what happens next? So Savannah, let's look at those questions and think about this first chapter of Sorcerer's Stone. Can you just tell us briefly the summary of what this first chapter is? 
Yeah. And I was going to go there because it, some of those questions on first blush, when we look at these first two scenes in the first chapter, you might think of the character who we're focused on in that moment, but that might not be who we should really be caring about. So we're going to get into that in a second, but it's going to be a fun and cool thing to look at. So this is all one chapter. There are two scenes. Scene one, this is where Mr. Dursley hears and sees strange things on his way to work. So he sees a cat reading a map, people dressed in ridiculous, I think, purple cloaks or purple and green, I don't know. Um, And even the mention of the Potter family and their son, Harry. So he's a little bit stressed out. All he wants to do is go to work and have a very average day, but he cannot. And so he's, you know, debating a few times, do I stress out my wife, Petunia, or do I keep all this stuff to myself? Um, And then by the end of this day or the end of the scene, he decides to keep them to himself because he's confident that even if the Potter family is involved in all the nonsense he's hearing about, there's no reason for them or that information to come and bother his family. So that's scene one. We're following Vernon Dursley. Scene two in this chapter is later that night, Albus Dumbledore, Professor Dumbledore, who's the headmaster of Hogwarts, meets Professor McGonagall outside the Dursley's home. So they have a chat. He confirms the rumors about Voldemort are all true, that Voldemort killed Lily and James Potter and then disappeared after he failed to kill Harry. And not only that, but his powers seem to be gone or broken. So very interesting stuff. When Dumbledore fills in McGonagall on his plans, he's going to drop Harry off at the Dursleys. She begs him, you know, through the roof to reconsider because he says these people are horrible or she says these people are horrible, but Dumbledore has already made up his mind and he decides he is going to leave Harry with the Dursleys. So Hagrid arrives and with baby Harry and Dumbledore leaves Harry on the Dursleys doorstep with a note saying, please take him in, please care for him, etc." So two scenes in that one chapter, kind of like a surprise prologue. Yes. You know, once upon a time I was on I was talking to someone, I think it was an editorial assistant at the time or a literary assistant at the time on Twitter. And the this chap, it's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So this is always going to come up in discussion in some way, right? Harry Potter is really ubiquitous. It's become its own thing. Like you can't even use it as a comparable title. You shouldn't use yeah. <laughs> a comparable title anymore because it's too big of its own thing. But they mentioned this as a prologue in disguise. Oh, yes, that is exactly what this is. It's a prologue in disguise. So interesting to look at this and how it's still going to create expectations for what the story is going to be, but how those expectations for certain elements, certain questions are going to shift a bit as you go forward into the the second chapter. So we're going to start with the first question. And the first question in this list of seven key questions to talk about with first chapters is focused on genre. And the question is, what kind of story is this? So just as a refresher, genre, when we're looking at this, we're thinking about the beginnings of manuscripts and how it's really important that the beginnings read like its genre. And this is especially important because if you don't satisfy those expectations of even the cover and title of a story, and that's going to to suggest, it's going to suggest what type of genre it's going to be. If the first pages aren't reflective of those genre expectations, it's going to be really difficult for an agent to know how to sell it, for a writer to know how to sell it. Uh, for a publisher to know how to market it and for a bookseller to know how to shelve it in their bookstore. So it's really important to satisfy the genre expectations. You're going to lose your target readers really fast if you don't satisfy them from page one in in all the story, right? But especially the beginnings. So Savannah, when we're looking at this, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, what genre? Yeah. So we talk about commercial and content genres too, right? So on one hand, we can all say this is middle grade fantasy, right? There's witches, wizards, all that fun stuff. That's more of our commercial genre. Content wise, Abigail and I have dissected this, you know, 10 ways till Tuesday, and we've landed on a combination of action and worldview. So it's action, there's life and death stakes. um, Harry's in danger. You know, Voldemort wants to come back to life throughout the story. And then it's worldview because Harry's learning a huge thing about his identity and he's the boy who lived. This is where he fits in the world. This is what's expected of him. So he kind of has to own that throughout the story. And this, I think we're going to get into this, but what's fun about these opening chapters or this opening chapter before we even get into Harry's point of view is like, how does this opening with Vernon Dursley and Dumbledore and McGonagall, how does that show us we're in for an action slash worldview story? Yeah. Right. So I don't know if you want to take that, Abigail, or. Yeah. No, I mean, you're you're hitting on all the things that I would want to talk about because I think what Savannah and I have talked a lot about is that why one of the reasons why Rowling is 
a master, that Rawling is exceptionally brilliant at making sure that the external story, what's going on with external stakes, so physical professional stakes, are equally as important as psychological stakes. And the psychological aspect of it, the coming of age story that's going on in Harry Potter, Harry Potter doesn't exist without that coming of age story. So when you think of it, and of course, like we're looking at the books, but to even think about um, the film adaptions of Harry Potter, when you look at a trailer of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, it's going to highlight more of those death stakes. It's going to be thinking about this action, this life spectrum of, is Harry going to live or die? Like they're like, they're absolutely inarguably death stakes in the story. But on a scene level, there's actually a lot more, especially in Sorcerer's Stone, maybe Sorcerer's Stone more than any other book about this worldview arc, this coming of age arc. And Harry is really going to struggle and deal with this reputation that he doesn't even remember of why he is the boy who lived, you know? So right. it's this idea, like, can you live up to that reputation? And what, and what is that? What are those expectations? Well, that, and there's like all this stuff that has been drilled in him from the Dursleys. And I totally did not mean to say drilled because uh, Vernon works with drills, <laughs> kind of fun, um, <laughs> accidental pun. But it's been drilled into him. Like, don't ask questions. You're weird. Something's wrong with you. You're incapable. You're less than. So he's got all this stuff that um, he's bringing into the wizarding world where he gets there and everyone's saying the opposite. Like, you're the chosen one. You're the boy who lived. This crazy dark wizard tried to kill you. So it's, it's and kind it of comes neat. with negative and positive attention around that right. reputation. Mm-hmm. That's right. And status. And even the positive attention Harry kind of views in a negative light because he just doesn't want to be in the spotlight. But so back to this opening scene, especially with Vernon, uh, we can think about how does this show us it's going to be an action story, right? And kind of we talked about this a little bit earlier. Voldemort tried to kill Harry and he did kill his parents. So, you know, we already are seeing that this little baby somehow defeated, temporarily defeated Voldemort, and there's danger and life and death stakes kind of baked into this. And it's funny because the first chapter, the way that Abigail and I analyzed it is that for now, everybody's kind of safe. So we're starting out in a very safe, like, you know, the dark Lord was just defeated. We're all safe for now. We don't really know what happened to him. Um, So it's like a celebration. And that's what Vernon sees on the streets is like, yay, you know, we're safe. Things are back to normal. Mm -hmm. And Um, within any action story, there's always going to be this suspense that's ingrained in the text on online level and a big picture level on the sense of you're, you may be safe, but you might not be safe for very long. Right. So it's interesting because like, you know, one of the things that Vernon in this first scene is dealing with is that everyone is celebrating. He doesn't understand why they're celebrating, but there are weird things going on that indicate that there's some celebratory stuff going on in a way that Vernon doesn't even want to acknowledge. But he wants nothing to do with that. He wants to avoid all of that. And then in the second scene, we get a closer look at what this celebration, what these oddities that are occurring in the scene are, right? why they're What they mean. Right, what they yeah. mean. And Dumbledore, where I think the suspense is really ingrained. Well, I guess in the first scene, suspense is ingrained because... Vernon doesn't want to acknowledge that something's going on. And I think the last line in the scene is something like of he was how wrong he could have been. Like he was, yeah, basically he was so wrong. Right. So we know that something is going to be coming up. Well, immediately after that, we have Dumbledore and Dumbledore is dealing with this reality that Harry needs to be left in the, in the guardianship of the Dursleys right. for some reason. Right. So it's kind of like, he doesn't want Harry to be part of this world. So some, Dumbledore understands something that I think a lot of characters don't understand. And the readers don't know the complexities of that, but there is suspense ingrained in the idea of danger might be gone for now, but maybe not forever. Well, and I think they even talk about that because she says, well, what happened to Voldemort basically? And he's like, you know, we don't really know. So it, it does leave that question mark open. But the other thing that's cool about the first scene, if you just look at it from Vernon's point of view he feels like he's in danger because all this crazy stuff is like throwing his life off balance. So it's kind of fun where we can look at Harry, you know, from he's a baby. That's, that's why these scenes are not in his point of view because, you know, babies can't do anything. Um, But Vernon himself is feeling the threat of the wizarding world celebrating this big event. Um, And then also, you know, Dumbledore and McGonagall and Hagrid are all kind of taking a chance, bringing Harry to the muggle world. So it's kind of interesting on multiple levels. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And now to look back at that commercial idea of the genre and what genre means on a commercial scale. So middle grade fantasy, middle grade fantasy is what Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is. When you're looking at a middle grade story and looking for the expectations of how it's going to satisfy that genre. Now, very early on, like immediately from this first scene, the fantasy is pretty obvious because we see oddities like a cat's reading a map, (laughs) right? Cats reading a map. There are shooting stars. There are owls all over the place. And of course, as soon as Dumbledore comes in the scene and has his off putter, like, okay, we, we have magic here. Uh, I'll transfigures from a cat to a human. We have magic here, but middle grade, how do we know this is middle grade versus young adult? What do you see Savannah? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Cause we don't, typically we would get into Harry's point of view, you know, or the protagonist's point of view right away. And we don't in these opening chapters, right? So what are some other clues that tell us it's middle grade? For me, I like, or I notice that middle grade tends to have a lot of humor and a lot of kind of silliness. So we do see some of that just in the way that Rowling writes, things that happened to Vernon Dursley. Um, we might not see that in an adult or a young adult book. So um, I don't know if you feel the same way, mm-hmm, Abigail. I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because it is interesting. And this actually makes me ask myself a question. Like I read the book as an 11 year old when it came out. So why was I able to connect into this world with two adults point of views right away? You know, that's a good question. It's, I don't know the answer, but it's an interesting thing to think about probably because I liked magic. It was funny. It was a little bit silly. Part of it, I think in middle grade too, is that there's always like the quote unquote bad adults or like the adults that we can kind of make fun of and like, you know, hope that they're not our own parents or something. And Vernon definitely fits that bill, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I think that humor is a good part of it. I think when I'm trying to figure out this, the answer to this question specifically, I think about the earlier Harry Potter books versus the later Harry Potter books. And I think you, there's a noticeable shift towards darkness and storyline as you move into the series. And specifically book four, I think is yeah. really, we really move into young adult and we're dealing with death on a, on a super intense way in the sense that like Harry, I'm sorry, we're going to have spoilers in this episode yeah. and all these episodes because it's Harry Potter, but we see Harry literally witnesses a murder at the end of Goblet of Fire versus like these right. earlier ones, death is there and it is tragic. Like we know where from these first pages that Harry Potter's parents have been murdered by this dark wizard. So there's this grand scheme of death, but I don't think it's as visual but as we see as like later into the story. So I think the the excitement more, level is there. Yeah, it's more it's, danger. Right. That brings that. Yeah. And I think it goes back to a testament to why Rowling is such a brilliant writer. We see her voice and even like, you know, the humor in her voice. Right. So that first line, it's like something like the Dursleys wanted nothing to do with anything. Thank you very much. Right. They wanted to be perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Yes. Perfect. (laughs) Right. So in that, thank you very much, like kind of pulls in that sense of humor. So we're connecting with that voice on a way that is that younger audience, but also it appeals to older readers as well. Yes. I could read and also, you know, some of those fantasy elements, like a cat reading a map. I mean, what 11 year old or what kid doesn't like that? Right. right. It's fun. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. But yeah. So question one, that was it, right? Yep. Yep. That's question one. So question number two, we're going to look at plot. I look at this one is kind of related most to plot and we'll right. dig into plot more specifically when we move into the scene analysis. So on a broader level, just asking the idea of what is the story really about And this is really important for writers to identify easily in the the content of their first pages because literary agents will have trouble selling a story if that big idea isn't noticeable and naturally received in these first pages. So thinking along the lines of plot, what do you think is the big idea that happens in these first pages that speaks to what we can anticipate as readers to see later in the story? And this is a fun question because it also relates back to genre for me. Like we see kind of what we just talked about, a boy who was almost murdered. He's the only survivor of this traumatic event. His parents were killed. And now we kind of wonder why, right? Like, why did he survive? What's going to happen to him once he gets to the Dursleys? Um, And then throughout the story, it's like, you know, why did Voldemort target him? How is he going to survive Voldemort coming back to power if he gets his hands on the stone? Mm -hmm. And how is he going to live up to his reputation if he even does? Is he going to accept his place in the world or not? So what do you see? 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing, the the most important thing that happens in this first chapter is that we know that this wizard, this dark wizard tried to kill a child. And a lot of questions come from that. One is why was Harry the only person to survive this killing curse that no one can really explain? The other thing is we know that Harry, that uh, Voldemort is still out there. So we don't really understand what happened to Voldemort, but we do know that Voldemort has tried to kill Harry and that he's not, you know, confirmed dead. So if he tried to kill Harry and he's still out there, you can anticipate that we're going to build towards a climactic moment where there's going to be confrontation between Voldemort and Harry. And that's one of the things that as a side note, I think Rowling's really brilliant at is that we know as readers, whether or not you're consciously thinking about it or not, that you're working out toward a climactic scene of a confrontation, a final confrontation between Harry and Voldemort in some way. The beauty of Rowling's writing is that so much of the story actually has nothing to do with Harry and Voldemort. It has a lot (laughs) to do with crime Snape stuff going on, mysteries and Snape yeah. and Malfoy, these like di- different levels of antagonism. And when I think about like what makes Harry Potter unique, the first thing that comes to mind for me, we have to look at world building and we're going to think about, there are other stories about witches and wizards, mm-hmm. but was there a story that was about a witch and wizard that was trained in a magical school system in London? And I think like the education part and making it a magical school became super significant in differentiating Harry Potter from other stories that might've come before yeah. it. And, you know, there's, al- there's always been stories about good and evil. And essentially at the root of it, this is a story where we're going to see a battle between good and evil through individuals yeah. of Harry and Voldemort and those who align on what sides. Um, but and that's, that's clear on those first pages. That it's yeah, and it, that. it goes back to what you said earlier too, that Voldemort tried to kill him as a baby. So that is a differentiating factor as well that yes. we didn't see a lot at that time. So, okay. That's number two, right? And number three is point of view. So who's telling the story? Exactly. And this is really interesting because this is the question that is going to make this first chapter, not exactly what we think the rest of the book is going to be. So point of view here, we talked about this is kind of a prologue in disguise. So what is the point of view for this first chapter, Savannah? And why does it differ from the point of view for the rest of the story? Yeah. So I'd say it's, it's similar to the rest of the story in the way that we're in third person. We are kind of zoomed out to an extent, and then we're zoomed in closer to first Vernon Dursley and then Dumbledore and McGonagall. However, Harry's a baby, so he cannot be our point of view character like he is in the rest of the book. So that's the main reason why it's different. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting as well, because, and we'll get to this really in the fourth question, which is about characters, but we're concerned about Harry very early on, even though Harry doesn't become a a really on-screen character, on-page character until later in the book. But what Savannah spoke to here, like it's this, it's this idea of we're going to be in third person. So it's not like we're going to shift from third person to first person Um, It's not quite omniscient, right? In the sense that we are closer to Vernon and we are closer to McGonagall in the sense that we're walking through it. What makes it different though, is that dominantly the rest of the book is going to be third person limited close to Harry and very, very rarely. And I don't know what you would call this Savannah, but very rarely, I think the only other time that I see it shift out of this is um, during the Quidditch match. Later yes. when Harry's on his broom and he can't, we can't really be following him because there are bigger things that are happening plot wise that we need, Hermione to, we need to Ron. follow Hermione. Yep. Um, it's when Hermione lights Snape's cape on fire when Harry is playing Quidditch and the broom is tampered yep. with. That's the only other time I can remember in the, on, in the context of, of, of the point of view where yep. it switches out of it. And then here, of course, in the beginning. And like you said, it's because Harry's a baby, like Harry doesn't remember any of this. Right. right. So, I mean, yeah. And there was a flash of green light and he remembers a motorcycle, but yeah. 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 And on that note about during the Quidditch match, it's so seamless and so well done that we barely even notice. And I want to say that even when you and I were analyzing this for all these years, it wasn't something we even talked about until nope. almost recently. No, I it think was... it took me into like, yeah. literally I've read, I, my aunt asked me the other day, like how many times we read Harry Potter. And I read these books once a year since they've come out. And Same. when Savannah and I have been analyzing them, uh, I mean, I can't even count how many times you read this now. And I think it was the last time I read it. Yeah. So whatever that was, 20, 30 plus times that I've read this, it's the, and it's only because I was zeroing in like right. on that analytical level, because my goal here as your editor was to help you analyze the story that I caught that. And I was like, oh, oh, 
Yeah. Oh, it switches. You know? Yeah. And that's, so. it's to me, I like pointing that stuff out because we, like we keep saying, we've read this so many times. We didn't even notice until recently. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do something like that in your own book, go study something like that because yeah. we didn't even notice. It's like an invisible zoom out and it's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And okay, I will so say that, like, you know, that the, it was encapsulated within a brilliant story. So right. it, it was, it wasn't. Cause I've seen writers do this thing where they feel like they have to switch point of views because they don't know how to tell it in any other right. way. And it's sloppy in a way, like yeah. it's a little bit of lazy writing. It's like, do you have to do that? Where, where I think this Quidditch match switch in this beginning switch, you, it, it can only be done that way. You know, it's like, there it has to be done that way in order for the story to read flawlessly and, you know, and read smoothly from this beginning to this end right. um, plot point. So I do think that as a writer, you have to really ask yourself the question of, is this the only way that I can do this? Or can you provide a different outlook through subtext or something like that? So just kind of keep that in mind as you're moving forward. Yeah. And I tell that to people all the time, like instead of just going to the easy answer, which is telling it through another point of view, creating a whole new scene around it, see how you can get creative. And this is a good example of how we can get creative. Yes. And also it's not a dot. It's not a whole chapter either. It's yeah. like a very quick, like, little... I want to say it's like over the span of like in and out of two pages. Or yeah. Something. I think that's it's very it. fast. I'm pretty sure it's like two pages. And like, of yeah. course here it is, it's two scenes within a first chapter, but again, this right. is a prologue. So, you know, look at it that yeah. way. So question number four is my favorite question because it's where I feel most drawn to when I look at a story, but it focuses on character. And the question is, which character should you care about the most? Should we care about the most? Meaning we readers. And so this is so fun because I like, I don't know why, but I still laugh when I read Vernon's chapter because he's just so like bumbling and so grumpy. And it's funny because throughout the whole chapter, I, as a reader, care about Harry, and that's exactly what I should be doing. I don't really care about Vernon. I'm kind of laughing at him going like, oh man, you know, what's going to happen what here? What a grump. Yeah. Yeah. What a grump. I almost hope your day doesn't go well. You know? <laughs> um, and then we get to Dumbledore and McGonagall and Hagrid's there. And, you know, you care about them because they're interesting, but you're yes. still concerned what's going to happen with Harry. Yeah. You know, are they really going to leave him here? We've seen how bad these people are. We kind of agree with McGonagall, like they're terrible people. Don't leave them but he does. And I think that you care about Harry early on because Rowling plants the idea that Harry is a character early on. So you don't really care about Vernon. Like you, right. exactly what Savannah said, we're laughing at him, right? Yeah. I want to go hang out with the purple cloak guy more than I want to yeah, hang out with me Vernon, too. right? Or so the cat. <laughs> or the cat. Yeah, that would be fine as well. Or the yeah. owls. You know, yeah. so it's like, that's where I want to be. But the humor comes out of seeing Vernon's day become miserable because yeah. he's so stiff. Uh, and, and kids then, like that. And kids like that. And kids yeah. like that. And early on, though, we hear this idea of the potters. So that catches our interest. Like the potters actually are really presented as the characters that we should care about because they seem more interesting than Vernon. You, right. I'm, I definitely care about McGonagall and Dumbledore because, like you said, they're interesting. Like right. Dumbledore. I mean, come on. How does Dumbledore walk on any scene and not be catch your attention, right? Right. Literally, and, starts capturing light from light posts. So. Yes. Yeah. And they care about Harry, so kind of by um, by proxy, we're into them, right? Because yes. we yes. already care. And, so. and that actually is a really important thing that you just said there, Savannah. Because when you have characters that readers like care about yeah. another character automatically we trust it, them it's automatically and you usually like them it's a psychological yeah. thing if you have anti-heroes and you have yeah. a character that you like like another character automatically whatever yeah. it is <laughs> i've had people say like oh i don't think it's going to happen i don't think that that will work for me no it does yeah. like it's it a does. psychological thing so yeah <laughs> yeah so for me it's also harry and also again like he's t- really sympathetic he's a baby that just lost his parents and he's been granted the celebrity status that he is going to be overwhelmed with later in his life. So yeah. everybody knows really, who he is. Everybody knows who he is. And it's yeah. really important. And this is a testament to Dumbledore and why Dumbledore is essential to be the adequate mentor for Harry, because mm-hmm. Dumbledore understands I have to remove Harry from the celebrity world, like from the world right. that will make him a celebrity. Right. And that's so crucial to Harry's you know, basic makeup as a character, because one thing that's really big, there are a lot of similarities between Voldemort and Harry, the, a big difference, you know, 
it determines how they make choices is Harry's yeah. humility. And right. because of Harry's cruel upbringing, he is a very humble wizard where if and, he grew up in any other family, that might've not been the case. Yeah. And he's compassionate towards others because he was bullied. So he's compassionate to people like Neville and, you yeah. know, he stands up for what's right because he's probably felt so powerless his whole life. Right. So right. yeah, huge right. point that he is so different from Voldemort in that way, but it very could have, it could have very easily been him growing up to become the next Voldemort. Yeah. Very much. So, yep. Okay. So that's the fourth question. Fifth question is about setting and you can't talk about Harry Potter without talking about setting. Yes. So the setting, where and when does the story take place? Yep. So we know the first chapter we're in Little Win- Winging, mm-hmm. right? Little Winging, Surrey. And we're at the Dursley's house. We're at his work. And then we come back to the Dursley's house, right? Mm-hmm. We also hear about Hogwarts in these first couple chapters when yes. Dumbledore and McGonagall are together. So we know that exists. It's not a surprise. That's the simple answer. Yep. And then if you were to go, <laughs> it's not on the page. If you go to research, we know it's in the 1900, 1990s of some sort. Right. I think I think Harry Potter is born in 1986. Am I right? So maybe it's 1986. I, I don't know. I'd have I to remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, remember. I know it's I know it's around 1989 of, of some sort. Yeah, so I some, think somewhere like around there. Late 1980s of some sort. It's not on the page. That's just because, you know, there's literally so much information out there about Harry Potter, but even just within that, like the important thing is that we are in London and being in London is really important right. for the story and the hint of where we're going. We're going to go from a very normal, right? Dursleys are all about normal. Anything that is not normal is to be Bad. exiled Bad. from my, my <laughs> from my life. And Hogwarts is literally the exact opposite of normal. It's as far from normal as you can go, right? So yeah. it's really important to see that contrast to be established in the normalcy of what Surrey London could be and then how these oddities start to catch our attention and how those are going to be blown out of proportion when we when we do travel, um, right. you know, when we do take the Hogwarts Express. So. And something important, so two things. First, I just looked up. He was born in 1980. Just oh. set the record straight. 80, okay. Um, 1980, yeah, there and go. then second... The other thing that's really important for people who are writing sci-fi fantasy is that it's not like we waited to get to Hogwarts to see magic and weird things. We saw that from the very first page. So like we talked about in question one, which was about genre, we need to know what kind of story this is. Mm -hmm. And so we know that based on cats reading maps, you know, we know we're in or whatever else there is. We know we're in for fantasy. We know there's strange things happening. We know there was a killing curse, you know, so we know there's magic. We know all this stuff in chapter one. And I see a lot of writers that don't do that. And it'll be like chapter seven and people are now using spells or there's like, you know, super technology that we didn't even know we're in a sci-fi story. So Mm -hmm. something to keep in mind. Yep. Absolutely. Great point, Savannah. Okay. The sixth question is about, I relate it to the core emotion. So how the question is, how should they feel? Meaning the readers, whenever I say they, in these contexts, the readers feel about, and I just lost it. How, how should, yeah. How should the readers feel about what's happening? Right. And so as a reader, I feel concerned for Harry. I feel Mm -hmm. curious about why he was targeted. What's going to happen to him. You know, how's his life going to be? Where are we going to meet him next? Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel intrigued and there's a sense of wonder about the world and, you know, and I also yeah. am laughing at Vernon a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it. I don't think you can leave out the humor. I think yeah. that's a big part of why this story is so engaging because there's a lot of humorous, like little yeah. humorous things that are really funny to, to yeah. write about a really serious topic that deals with death and to integrate humor and happiness within it is really a brilliant move. Right. And even like, I know we're not in this chapter when we see Harry, but even the bullying stuff with the family, how they treat him, there's still humor in that. So it's like, we're getting a little bit of that levity in a tougher topic. And a lot of it too, in the sense that they're really cruel to Harry, but they don't actually physically harm him. Like we're not, we're not going to a level of physical harm physical and abuse. often like Harry is able to one-up them a lot of the time. So right. not in this early book, but later in the books when he yeah. has some, you know, power over them. So, yes. yeah. Okay. And now here's the seventh question. And this, you know, when I'm looking at all these questions are really important, but when I, as an editor, as a reader, as a writer, I'm looking at questions. I really look at character. I really look at plot. I really look at setting. And then I really look at this one and it's question number seven. And it's about stakes. 
So when I'm looking at stakes, the idea of why should they care what happens next? And when you're thinking stakes, you should be thinking about the action that's happening in the story. How is the action of the story going to establish the type of stakes that we're really going to be up against on you know, an external level and an internal level? How are the stakes also speaking to the premise of story and also the big idea of the story? So when you're right. thinking about all those three factors with it, Savannah, what do you think are the main stakes of the story? And why do you think that really pulls us into the characters and the plot? Yeah. So kind of like what we talked about earlier, and I love when questions start to overlap because to me, I'm like, that just shows we have something really cohesive. Um, but the two main things I'm kind of thinking of are what's going to happen to Harry. Is he going to survive his life? Cause we don't, we don't really know as readers getting into this first chapter, like how far we're going to take this first book. So we're kind of just wondering like, how's he going to survive? What's going to happen when that eventual confrontation happens? Um, how's it going to be for this guy who is a wizard kid, who is a wizard going to the wizarding world when he knows nothing, you know, and how's he going to feel about that? Is he going to be ready? Is he going to make friends? Is he going to belong? So I'm asking all those questions when Harry's just a baby. Yep. And I love to go to, whenever I look at stakes, I love, well, I, there are two big resources that I use for stakes. I look at James Scott Bell and he talks about, I think it's in his revision and self-editing book. He talks about the whiff of death stakes right. and the main three whiff of death stakes are physical, psychological, and professional. You'll notice that most masterworks actually have a combination of all three in some way, but there's right. always going to be a dominant whiff of death stake. And then also I look at Donald Moss has a writing the breakout novel is a book that he wrote and he talks about private and public stakes. So the idea here of like private stakes become public stakes. So it starts to become something that's really important. These stakes impact and the main character that we're supposed to be drawn to the most. And as the story progresses, those stakes become you know, escalating and more complicated because they become public. They start to affect right. more than just that one character, which is why we care about the story even more. So when I'm thinking stakes here, the first, the dominant stakes in the scene, and it's also why I identify this as action first and worldview, although like really I don't yeah. think the story works without worldview, yeah. are the physical stakes. And the physical stakes are also what create my concern and excitement for what the story is going to be, but also concern for Harry and the potential that he could be killed. He was right attempted murder right there. So those stakes, there are definitely physical stakes, but then all of these psychological stakes are clearly baked in to this first scene in the sense of how life is going to be really hard for Harry yeah. on from, from beginning to end, it's going to be a lot harder for him than other people. It's also what's going to make him the hero of the story of rags right. to riches, right? And so on, on that note, what you just said is really important because we know in the first chapter that living with the Dursleys is not going to be pleasant. So even if he doesn't somehow get to the wizarding world, he's not going to have a great life. We're curious. We're concerned about that. But then we also know there, you know, there is someone out there that tried to kill him. Yep. So it takes it to another level. Yep. That's right. And the professional stakes are hinted at in there in the sense that he's going to be the boy who lived. So is he going to be, how is that going to be impacting him and this role of a student who also has this like celebrity status of sorts, right? And what's he going to do with that? Is he going to be good? Is he going to be evil? Right. You know, right. How's and it going to go? Makes us love him is he wants, he wants nothing to do with it. So, right. okay. So those are the seven questions and that helps us understand the big picture of what Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is about. Of course, the series is also, you know, relates to similar things with this big picture, but we're specifically looking at Sorcerer's Stone today and why this first chapter hooks our attention. That's how it establishes and introduces us to what this book is going to be. Now let's zero in and go look specifically at structure and scene level. And to do this, we're going to use the Story Grade 5 Commandments that Savannah and I are both very uh, familiar with because we're certified in Story Grade and we, we can talk about these five commandments and how the five commandments will determine if there is a change in a scene because a scene doesn't work and a story doesn't work if there isn't a change. So Spanner, right. I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you take it away here. Okay. And so the other fun thing we wanted to kind of show you guys is that we have been working on this for multiple years. And uh we uh, like let's say six to eight months ago, we agreed on a final version of what this is. Today we're seeing it with fresh eyes and we already have different thoughts. So we'll show you what those are. I'm gonna read what we had before, and then Abigail, you can chime in with the differences we see now. And what you guys will notice too, is that even though we're kind of changing little things here and there, it doesn't affect the overarching structure of the scene. It's just like a minor uh, nuance here and there. So we thought it was interesting. We're going to leave that in and see how it goes, but okay. 
So scene one, this is where we're with Vernon and his goal is pretty much to have the most basic normal day that any man could have. He wants to go to work, come home and eat dinner and like do his thing. Mm -hmm. So the inciting incident is the first thing that gets in the way of that goal. In our analysis, we had that is Vernon sees a cat reading a map outside of his home. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I know we had a different thought maybe. Abigail, so you go ahead. Yeah, you know, so just to speak to what Savannah said, we've gone back, we've analyzed this in a lot of different ways. I just want to emphasize that when you do analyze scenes as editors, as writers of your own, as editors of your own work, whatever you're going to do, if you're just a reader who now enjoys all these tools, we follow the Socratic learning method. So the way that I may see it might be different than the way Savannah sees it, might be different than the way you see it. And the, the goal here is to not find the perfect answer, but to have an educated debate about what this could be to help us identify what that change is. So right. I say that because it's really interesting is we have changed our analysis of this first scene in particular. I think the second scene, we haven't shifted as much about what that right. what it's about, but this scene in particular, and it's tricky because we're following Vernon. And when I, the more that I've been thinking about this, I think it's really important before you start um, to look for these commandments, you have to ask yourself, what is the goal of the character? Because the inciting incident, the role in the inciting incident is to either throw the first unexpected, you know, unexpected event at whether it's causal or coincidental at the main character, which is going to make them change their goal or basically like find a new approach in order to achieve their goal. So it's like a speed bump uh, for a little mini speed bump. Right. And it can't be the big bump, right? Because that we need to escalate the stakes as we go through the scene. So it's really interesting. It's like, as I was looking closely, I was reading it again, what time, time, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I was reading it again and I really have noticed how it's emphasized multiple times that Vernon is desperately wanting to just think about drills you know, yep. he's going out to his job to think about drills and it comes out. He drills it into us that he wants to think about drills. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> and all he wants to do is think about drills. And as he goes throughout the day, things complicate that and make it more distracting. So right. yes, I do think that there is an argument for it to be the cat in a sense that this is the first thing that is odd, right? Yes. And he pays attention to that. So I do think that there's an argument there. As I was reading it closer though, I don't think it's as significant as the moment when the potter's names are mentioned because he's pretty easily able to kind of just say like, that's odd. I want to keep going. That's odd. I want to keep going. But until the potter's names are mentioned and because Vernon Dursley understands that the, that his wife who they don't has a relation to the potters that they don't talk about, like they want nothing to do with it. um, When that on the oddities in combination to this potter name that's when it actually becomes difficult for him to think about drills. And there's a line um, in there in, in the closely, um, there's a line shortly after that mentioning that says, you know, quote, just, he just wants to think about drills. But then basically there's, there's a line in there that says that it becomes drastically more different, difficult for him to think about the drills. Right. Uh, he starts getting really distracted. So I almost argue that the inciting incident, I think is actually the mentioning of the potter's name, because this also triggers a moment that it becomes really difficult for him to think about drills, but it also builds us towards a more uh, related climactic moment in the scene, which is going to relate around if Mr. Dursley mentions the potters to his wife. So let's go there. Cause what I had before for our turning point, which is kind of that peak moment of conflict. So if we're thinking in speed bumps, you've had all these speed bumps that get harder and harder to go over. And then now we're at a road close sign. So now what are we going to do? And what we had as his turning point is that he hears someone mention the potter family and their son, Harry. So now that we're looking at this, we're like, maybe that's the inciting incident. Doesn't matter right now. Okay. We're just, we're just going through this. Um, so we had that as turning point, Abigail, I know that you had a note that it was a little later and I'm going to pause you on saying that. Cause we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, after that turning point, I, we had the crisis of, so what is he going to do now that the turning point has happened? And we had, should Mr. Dursley tell Petunia, he heard someone mention the Potters and their son, Harry, or should he shoulder the burden of worry himself to not upset his wife any further? So now Abigail, you can tell, talk about the new turning point we think it could be. Yeah. So I think that the new turning point, when you think about that, 
It's the previous one that we had, there was a little bit more distance between the turning point and the crisis decision. And I think that it's better to find turning points that immediately thrust a character into a crisis decision. So we want to look for something that's a little bit closer that can immediately cause a crisis that we have to act on now. And if you don't, the reason why it's a turning point that causes a crisis versus a regular progressive complication is because even to ignore that decision will end in consequences, whether or not negative or positive. But essentially, I think that a new turning point with this would actually be around does Vernon upset Petunia or not sparked by this turning point of he mentions something briefly about the Potters and Petunia snips at him. And she gets upset. She does. And it's really interesting because I know that we don't know this from this first chapter, but in the whole series, Petunia is ridiculously submissive. To right. Like she never speaks out against the men in her family, Dudley or her husband. Right. And this is the, I think like if, I mean, I'd have to go back and look at the whole series, but this might be the only moment I see her snip at yeah. the men in the family. So that was significant to me because I was and what even more interestingly, Vernon immediately backs off. Right. So it was this idea here of like, it's a big deal. Even if you don't know if she normally snips the family, it's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal because he backs off immediately. And I think that's the idea of like, it's probably indicating that this isn't a common occurrence for her to sniff at him and he doesn't want to really deal with it. So I mean, he doesn't really want to push it further. I would say right. not necessarily deal with it, but, yeah. um, and so, yeah, so this gets us to the climax that this we kind of agree from here on out but basically he doesn't tell petunia anything he doesn't push it like abigail said that's the climax so Mm -hmm. the action of the crisis choice and then the resolution is that he basically falls asleep feeling confident and delusional that nothing to do with the potters is going to affect his family yeah and delusional is a really important word there because (laughs) petunia falls asleep super easily and right. Vernon takes a little bit of time because he's still thinking about all of this. But as soon as he convinces himself, even if the Potters have something to do with all this weird stuff that I want nothing to deal with, yeah. they're not going to come looking for us. Like they're not going to come bother us. And that's what I care about. I don't want to be bothered. Right. My family doesn't be bothered. So as soon as he convinces himself, even if they are a problem, it's not going to bother me. He falls asleep immediately. And of course, like the last line is indicating that he's going to be wrong about that. Right. Which you have a note here. That's great. It's, this is what helps us create suspense because you know, it's exactly what you're saying is that he falls asleep. And then there's that line of how very wrong he was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and it's a fun thing to think about when you think about suspense too. suspense is really ingrained in text. When we think about how the characters don't really know what's going to happen next and the readers don't know what's going to happen next. So we're suspenseful because no one knows what's going to happen. It's also fun because Vernon came up with his own conclusion that as readers, we can be like, I don't know about that Vernon. Mm -hmm. So now we're kind of seeing two different realities, his delusional reality and what we're inferring as reality. Exactly. Um, But so what's cool about this is even though we had some different options for the inciting incident and the turning point, they're very similar. They do the same job in the scene. We still get to the same arc of change. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And we can talk about that arc of change in two ways. So why don't you, Abigail, take like the surface level of Vernon, like what changed for him? Yep. Yeah. So when we're thinking about the surface level, we're thinking about like literally what is the most basic change that happened in the scene? That's what you're referring to, right, Savannah? Yep. Yep. So just from Vernon's perspective, like basically on the most literal level, like, I mean, if you really want to go literal, he goes (laughs) from like, you know, home to work to back to home. Right. So it's kind of like there is movement in that scene. But I think like, well, I guess like, what do you, when, when you think on the surface, what do you think has changed for Vernon? I think that it's about him dismissing what's right. going on. So the idea here is like, he starts out with some uncomfortability about what's going on, like based yeah. on that inciting incident, but by the end he's good. He's Yeah. It's kind of like it reality off. to delusion. It's right. normal to abnormal, you know, right. normal to strange, however you want to say discomforted it. So, to comforted, like right. you know, something like that, or yeah. delusionally comforted, whatever you want to yeah. say. But there's, but the point is there's a change, right? And then what's really cool that Abigail and I have been doing for our analysis here is that we've been zooming out and saying, okay, we know this is Harry's story. So how do we want to frame an arc of change that represents the global story that affects Harry? Mm -hmm. So what we came up with was, I'll say it in a short summary, and then we'll kind of talk about it. Mm -hmm. Basically, as Vernon deals with strange events, the wizarding world celebrates Harry's survival and the temporary defeat of Lord Voldemort. So Harry and the wizarding world were in danger. And throughout this scene in the background of it, 
they have moved to be being temporarily safe. And so we know from the context of the scene, Harry has just lost his parents. Voldemort's temporarily been defeated. Many witches and wizards celebrate this, but nobody knows what happened to him and if he will return or not. And for now, they're just celebrating. They feel safe. They feel happy. So something has definitely changed from that big zoomed out global perspective as well. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the things that Savannah and I had to get our heads wrapped around as we were doing like another level of this is that when you're looking at the scene level versus the big picture, but you can't now that I, I mean, now that I've processed that we need to look at both of those things, I can't not look at it anymore. And it makes sense, right? Because when you're writing your drafts, you are focusing on big picture first, but then you have to look at small picture, but small picture has to impact big picture. So this idea of like not trying to force it, but just look for how is the small picture impacting the big picture. Well, and also this is a good thing that I'm just now thinking of is if we, if we pretend that this became a real prologue, because we keep saying it's a prologue in disguise, it's not just like a prologue to tease us about Vernon and like, you know, to show us the world and something happened. It is that, but it also has this really big impactful meaning that we don't know about until later. So it serves a really good purpose. And if you're creating a prologue for your own story, it's, it can't just be something flashy. It needs to have meaning. And it has to impact big picture. I think too. I think if you're going to have a prologue in there, it can't just be, this is what happened before the story happened. I think it has to be either this is where the story is going, or this is really important to where the story is going to surface and and it's climactic moment. Yeah. And something else that I like about this scene is the perspective that Abigail talked about was Vernon's day is getting worse and worse. It's getting stranger and more strange, you know, and Harry's world, or even though his parents were just killed his Mm -hmm. day is getting better because he's becoming safer and safer the farther he gets away from the scene of the crime Um, so from a reader's perspective we're following kind of that upward trail of harry in the background we're also following the downward spiral of vernon so it gives us a cool uh, emotional feeling yeah i'm sorry i was just getting yeah go ahead bite it chomp the bit there yeah go ahead i i think that that is so significant in the way that we've really analyzed harry potter because often there is a contrast which is been somewhat confusing sometimes, but also right. also Fun. makes purpose. I'm like, oh, wait yeah. a second. Like this is why an external story is working and an internal story is working at the right. same time. Like it's, I think that you can analyze scenes from Harry's psychological coming of age story, the worldview perspective. I think you could analyze every scene from that perspective. I think you right. can also analyze it from the action side of life and death stakes and where that's going. So right. why, again, I think Rowling writes is a, a masterpiece, master. right? Like why <laughs> she writes a master, why she really writes a timeless story that is there juggernaut in fantasy? Like when right. I think about what are the juggernauts, what are the rings, Harry Potter, right? Throw Hunger Games in there. If you want to throw something with dystopian in there, right? Narnia, that's probably it. Those are the juggernauts that they think about. So when you're thinking about why is that it's because really there is this like internal argument, but there's this external argument and they can both work. So again, not to put you into a paralysis of analysis, but the idea here is like, it's about understanding with purpose why something is moving forward and how that right. creates a change instead of looking for like, quote unquote, like the perfect answer, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. And another thing that's cool about this scene too, is like from Vernon's perspective, this is the day that his life starts to change. He doesn't know it, but it's interesting that he kind of blames Harry for his, his unhappiness. And yeah. we get to see that in this scene and not that I we agree that you, with him. And I love yeah. that you brought that up though, because one of the really big, one of the, uh, one of the really important things that happens in a first chapter is that a chapter should open on a character's worst day. Right. You know? So it's like an, yes, like this is the worst day of Harry's life in the sense that his parents were murdered. But again, he doesn't remember any of that. And we don't follow him, but it is the start of a terrible day or a terrible moment in his life. Yeah. Because he's going to be dropped with this responsibility that he wants nothing to do with. So, well, and the character that we're actually following, it's a pretty bad day for him too. Yeah. Terrible so, day for him. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then let's see the only other thing I wanted to say, which I'll just say it now. And it, it applies to both scenes is that yeah. notice because it's a middle grade fantasy story, rolling is not like dumping information about the world on us. It's very small in these opening chapters. Cause we don't need to know about Hogwarts, the classes, like what Dumbledore taught, what McGonagall teaches. Like we don't need to know any of that. We just need to get through what's happening in the scene. And we're going to be introduced to the magical world very slowly. So that's appropriate for middle grade readers. Whereas like in adult fiction, I'm thinking about something like the way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson or whatever else we get. Sometimes we get a lot of information up front, but we can handle that. We're adults. You yep. know, we're more sophisticated readers. Yeah. And Brandon Sanderson, if you've ever watched his courses online on YouTube, yes. he does a series of them. He talks about shell learning curve or steep learning yes. curve. 
And I, it's, you should go Google it really, because it's yeah. a brilliant lesson that he gives on shallow versus um, steep learning curves. But exactly that. I think if you're going with these younger audiences, you benefit a lot from a shallow learning curve. And that doesn't make it any less brilliant of a work as right. a steep learning curve. It's just the difference is we're learning with the characters with the shallow learning curve versus trusting the reader to just like go with it in a steep learning right. curve. Awesome. Um, okay. So scene two, we're going to do the same thing. Dumbledore's goal is to drop Harry off via Hagrid bringing Harry. McGonagall's goal is to talk to Dumbledore, figure out if the rumors she heard are true or not. And to kind of, when she hears what he's going to do with Harry, dissuade him from doing that. So I think we decided to look at this through Dumbledore's kind of following him, yeah. um, even though we're a little more zoomed out. Uh, point of view wise. So Mm -hmm. the inciting incident is that McGonagall is waiting for him and he's not expecting that. It's the first little hurdle that gets in his way. Did you have anything to add there? You want me to just keep going? No, I I do want to just jump in real quick because we talked about when we were looking at the point of view and how we're kind of closer to Vernon and then we're closer to Dumbledore in this scene. And the reason why, because I do think it's interesting, you could ask yourself, it actually opens, even though we don't know it opens with McGonagall. McGonagall is the first character we see on the page disguised as a cat. Uh, And then, you know, Dumbledore comes into the scene and we start following him more. But I think that, and we'll talk about this in a second, the crisis question really belongs to Dumbledore versus McGonagall. And that's why I would choose to follow Dumbledore instead of McGonagall, even though both in their own way, because they're actually antagonists of each other in the scene. Again, like another, another good thing to point out, like when you're having another force of antagonism in a scene, it doesn't have to be an enemy, right? It just has to be someone who conflicts with what you're trying to do. So, right. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, we had this as both ways before we followed McGonagall, we followed Dumbledore. You can pull out these five commandments for either character. We just chose to follow Dumbledore. So inciting incident, is she's waiting for him. He does not expect this. The turning point is when McGonagall challenges his plans and says, hey, the Dursleys are not appropriate guardians. They're bad people. Are you sure you want to leave Harry here? Right. And that's really, again, just to reemphasize, the turning point is different from other progressive complications because it forces a character into a crisis question. And that crisis question will come with consequences no matter what you decide. So what do you think those, when you go into the crisis or crisis here is kind of the idea of should Dumbledore stick to his plan and explain his reasoning to McGonagall or should he change his plans based on McGonagall's observations? So why why do you think that creates potential consequences, Savannah? Well, there's two things I want to say. So first it's interesting because I don't know if, I mean, Dumbledore is a good guy that would probably listen to anybody if they had concerns, but McGonagall is his right hand. When she brings up a concern, he does kind of, it does prompt a crisis for him, you know, where someone else, like if it was Hagrid and he was kind of just saying something Hagrid-ish, maybe it wouldn't prompt such a tough decision. So, so that's interesting to note. Also the consequences like Abigail's asking is what happens if we leave Harry here to grow up? And, And you touched on this earlier. He grows up to be a humble kid because of this, the way he was raised, where if we did listen to McGonagall and he was, you know, maybe brought up in the wizarding world by who knows who. Uh, he might've turned out like a Malfoy or a Voldemort. Right. And I think a big part of it is, and we're going to talk about this in the resolution, but the last lines that Dumbledore says before he leaves are good luck, Harry. So I think it indicates that, you know, when when McGonagall brings this up, Dumbledore isn't leaving Harry there willy nilly. Like it's not easy for him to leave him there. He knows that the Dursleys are terrible people. You know, like he knows that he's putting Harry and throughout the whole series, we see this in the last two books of this, of the series, but Dumbledore really struggles with what he puts Harry through, but he does it because he thinks it's going to end in the best result for Harry. So just to reemphasize, like leaving him there isn't an easy decision. He knows it's meaning a a terrible childhood, but he also believes that it's going to keep Harry the safest. He believes that it's going to help Harry become the boy, like Savannah just mentioned, the boy he needs to become in order to take on a better life and become a better human being. Yeah. The other thing we don't know about yet is the protection that Petunia offers him. So Mm -hmm. he has that in mind too. And like, you know, you have to imagine on his side, part of him's like, I know McGonagall, you're right. These people are terrible, but I know this other thing too. And I'm kind of taking what I think is the best step. And he has to keep that secret. That's a big thing. Like Dumbledore can't, even though McGonagall is a right hand man, you know, it's like, it's a right hand woman, right? Right hand woman. I think it's that it's really interesting because throughout the series and it, you know, not to go too far off topic, but really the only one that 
Dumbledore shares the most information with is Snape. Right. So it's really interesting. Like he trusts Snape the most. Ironically, Voldemort trusts Snape the most. So I could have a whole episode of my love right. for Snape. But maybe I think we will. Right. Maybe <laughs> we should. But I think that the whole idea here is that when he's thinking about this, like that's also difficult sometimes to keep, you know, I don't know if it call it like a secret, but he he has to um, withhold information from yeah. someone to clearly explain, like to fully explain why he's doing this for again, Harry's safety. Once you present the crisis question of should Dumbledore leave Harry and explain to McGonagall why he's leaving Harry, or should he listen to McGonagall and change his plans? We go to the climax and the climax is actually a lot quicker than the resolution because the climax is actually just the action showing the character making their decision. So the climax of this scene is what Savannah? Is Dumbledore explains to McGonagall why he's doing this and he remains firm. So he does not give in to her challenge. Um, And then it leads us to the resolution that Hagrid arrives with baby Harry and they leave him on the doorstep. And we see that they're all sad to leave him, but they're, you know, Dumbledore's still confident he made the best decision. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And the resolution then is going to show us where the character is at at the end of the scene. So again, it's going to show us clearly that there is a change. There has been a change on the surface level and the big picture level, but also just kind of Show us where the character's at. So after Dumbledore makes that decision, what do we see as the resolution, Savannah? Yeah. So that's just that they've left him. Harry's now safe. Mm-hmm. Harry's now safe. And Dumbledore, I is th- I think is confident in that he has done the right thing. Yes. You know, I think he McGonagall is, is, yeah. And like, you know, McGonagall probably still has um, some concerns and worries about leaving Harry, but she also trusts Dumbledore. So we just know Harry is left. And of course there's a resolution of Aunt Petunia coming down later and screaming. Getting a surprise. <laughs> getting yeah. a surprise and screaming. And Uh, You know, meanwhile, in the background, Harry Potter doesn't even realize that people are celebrating and toasting to the boy who, to to the boy who Who lived, lived, Yeah, which is of course him. The cool thing about this first chapter is that the two scenes we looked at kind of move, they change Harry's circumstances in the same way. So he's moved out of his, like the rubble of his house that was left after Voldemort killed everybody, his parents. So he's going towards safety. And then he's Mm -hmm. here at the Dursleys, which is more towards safety. So it's interesting to me when I think about constructing chapters and Mm -hmm. why we have these two scenes in one chapter, because we're kind of moving him on that same arc, the same direction. Absolutely. And what do you think Savannah is the change on the internal scale for the characters? So like, if you were to say what that surface level change, I mean, what we talked, just talked about that with the rubble, what do you think like the, the change for the characters is in this scene? I mean, in a way like Dumbledore has been successful, right? He was, he went there to do a job. He's now succeeded in doing his job. Mm -hmm. He maybe was questioning himself when he showed up. We don't know that for sure, but by the end he's confident, right? Um, Harry was more exposed. Now he's safe. These are just, you know, I, I think all those things. And I think that you can also look at the idea of on a mission to completing a mission yes. on an external scale, something like that. Uh, you know, it's not on the page. So we don't really know right. what the character changes on the page, but maybe um, it could be something like nervousness to relieved. Like if you move it from yeah. before Harry's there to when Harry's there, uh, you know, relieved with hope yeah. that it's not and as the- bad as it, as it could be. Yeah. But I think that the, the whole goal here is again, when we talk about these value shifts or these shifts and change, the words that we use, they're words that we're just throwing out there, right? I yeah. think that the whole point is not to find the perfect words, but to know that the words are reflective of a movement in plot and a development of character because there is change. Right. Yeah. And it's fun because, I mean, you guys would probably die to hear the amount of words we've thrown out about different changes and it's crazy. And it's so nuanced. We'll even say like, is he temporarily safe? Is he Mm -hmm. near safe? Is he safe? Is he bordering on safety? Like it's crazy. I think Um, picking the words is one of the hardest things that we have done when looking at these changes, but it's because we spin our wheels in a place where it's like, just make a choice. Sometimes it's right. Just make a choice. (laughs) And so like we keep saying, the important thing is that we're all noticing there is change. We're noticing that it kind of goes from, you know, we can talk about, is it going from negative to positive, positive to negative, And we're agreeing on the way that it goes. So, you know, in your chapters or scenes, don't worry about getting the perfect word. And, and sometimes we even leave a list of words. Cause we're like, it's all of these things. And they're all moving from negative to positive. You know, mm-hmm. the other thing I love, I just want to point out a really fun, like nerd thing about this is that McGonagall's like, can't you do anything about that scar on his head? 
And Dumbledore says, no, and scars can come in handy. And I think it's fun that throughout the series, um, Harry's scar serves as a warning sign when Voldemort's around. And we're going to see that, you know, later on, but it's already planted in this very first chapter and it represents a link between Harry and Voldemort. So I think that's really cool. Oh, Very small detail. No, small detail, but super significant to, again, plot and character. And a large part of this entire story and series is going to be about Harry's similarities. He has more similarities than differences than Voldemort, but his differences are defiant of the type of character he is. So right. that's kind of like the basis of, we have a lot of alike, but right. what makes us different is actually what defines us as who we and are. And on that note, it's fun because McGonagall, through the conversation with McGonagall and Dumbledore, we learn that Dumbledore considers Voldemort to be more powerful, um, but Dumbledore is the only wizard that Voldemort fears. So, and and through the conversation, McGonagall says it's not about skill set; it's because you're willing to make different choices and yes. to not do that dark magic. And I mean, plus Dumbledore's kind of becoming aware of Voldemort's vulnerabilities, which we don't know about right now. But it's just a fun little preview of Harry is going to make these different choices because Dumbledore made this choice about where he grows up. So, yep, perfect. So, I know we could talk about this all day. Yes, we could. We could because there's always something great to talk about. But I think that that encapsulates really what the big picture is and on the scene level, what the structural level is. So we hope that by doing this analysis together, this helps you understand what makes Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first chapter of it, really hook readers and helps you also make sure that if you are writing your story, regardless of if it's middle grade fantasy or not, understanding the elements that are going to work in order to help you hook readers. And then what you have to do here's the trick. Fulfill those expectations throughout the rest of the story. My parting advice, words of wisdom is like, don't expect to get all the stuff we talked about on your first iteration of your first chapter. Through my experience as a coach and an editor, the first chapter gets revised more than any other chapter. So even if you only get to like, you know, we were talking about what happens to Vernon on the surface. If you only get to that in your first chapter, the first three passes, you're fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. This is what editing's for to put in all these layers and all that fun stuff. So absolutely. And it comes with practice and the analysis, like Savannah's saying, the analysis that we have delivered to you today, even shifted before this call. Yeah. And more importantly, <laughs> we've had each other to talk it out over years, over the course yes. of years, right? So it's okay for it to take time. Just take if you can take anything, just work on one little bit at a time. But yeah. we're gonna have multiple essays, um, multiple episodes on this. And we promise we'll be here to explain it yeah. to you in the most practical way that we can. Yeah. We'll be back soon. But all right. Thank you guys. Thanks, Abigail. Thank you. Good to see you. So that's it for today's show. As always, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and showing your support. If you want to check out any of the links I mentioned in this episode, you can find them over at savannagilbo.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the show because there's going to be another brand new episode coming out next week. If you're an Apple user, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to leave a quick rating and review. Your ratings and reviews tell iTunes that this is a podcast that's worth listening to. And in turn, that helps this show get in front of more fiction writers just like you. So that's it for today's show. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, happy writing.